Welcome to Lost in the Movies. This episode is covering the film Elephant by Alan Clark, a late 80s TV film aired on a British television about the troubles in Ireland, in Northern Ireland, told in a very unconventional way, as I'll describe. So this was an episode I talked about uh, years ago on my Patreon. I'm sharing it here now alongside feedback I got on it that I thought was very interesting from somebody who was familiar with the period from... Um, they were British, and I think they'd seen the film around then, and just their perception of how it played out versus mine I thought was very interesting. So I included that here along with some discussion I found online on uh, another website and also a clip from a documentary about it. So there's all kinds of addendums interesting to uh, include. Last episode, I covered the John Carpenter film Halloween, the original one. I was thinking maybe I would get to cover some of the other uh, Halloween films, including the most recent later in the month, but that didn't happen. Um, I've been very busy on work on some Twin Peaks projects and realizing I have to change some things up, including on this podcast feed, so I'll talk about that in a second. But the other episode that I put out in October was a bonus episode called Announcement, Revised Schedule and Format, where I go into detail about that. So I've been slowing down my approach where I've just been multiplying all these different projects and things I'm working on and publishing in order to focus on basically three Twin Peaks projects, one being my Lost in Twin Peaks podcast going public, where I'm splitting up the episodes I recorded for patrons and releasing them daily on uh, w watching through the whole Twin Peaks series, and uh, also doing an illustrated companion to that where I'm putting up screenshots from each episode, and listing everything, characters, locations, etc. So that has proven much more time-consuming than I expected. As I said, I talked about that in the announcement, so I won't go into too much detail about it here. But another project is the Twin Peaks character series, which I'm hoping to begin in uh, January, written studies of each character going from the smallest to the largest in Twin Peaks. So I want to get a head start on that in the next month or so. And then finally, of course, my Journey Through Twin Peaks videos, finally getting to do the last group of those uh, once I got other things out of the way. So with those projects in mind for 2022, and some of them already started now, I just realized I couldn't do as much as I thought. Plus, I'm also doing monthly conversations with Twin Peaks commentators uh, on my Patreon. And that's something people seem to have enjoyed, and uh, I want to keep doing that. So what that means is I'm dropping a bunch of other projects that I was doing, or it looks like I'm, about, I'm going to. I'm giving it a few more days to see how things go, but it's headed that way. Uh, but I will still maintain this podcast monthly using older episodes as I've been doing from Patreon. So sharing um, reviews that I recorded for patrons years ago and putting those out at this point instead of every other week, probably monthly uh, on this feed. And I'll also be publishing um, some form of uh, the Lost in Movies podcast that I've been doing since 2018 on Patreon, probably pared down somewhat from all the different categories I had and the approaches I was taking every month. Uh, I'll also probably continue the Olympic film series that I've been doing. That's been uh, post, but it's, it, it's probably going to be postponed. I was supposed to do it monthly and I haven't done it since August. So looking at the uh, documentaries about the Olympics in between this summer's Olympics and this coming winter's uh, Olympics with those as the sort of bookmark. So that'll probably resume in a month or two. And uh, I was also disappointed to see, um, the Dune is getting so much buzz, the new Denis Villeneuve film that I was building up to seeing. I may still put out an episode on that at some point, but it just 
with all the other stuff going on. Plus, I wasn't able to get together with uh, my friend Max, who we were maybe going to do another discussion to follow up on the one we had with Blade Runner. So it just hasn't come together. And looking at all the hype it's getting, it would be certainly fun to uh, participate in that. I'm curious to to see the film still, but uh, that's where all of that stands. So I'm probably... as a regular feature, I'm probably going to drop the idea of doing new releases every month on this feed, as I was hoping to, at least until I'm done with these other projects, which probably be at least another year. So it, it will just be older films every month, kind of keeping the feed going, tending the flame for when maybe I can do a little more on uh, on this podcast. And uh, I also does not look like I will be doing the left of the movies uh, feed that I was hoping to do. So again, this, there was a whole separate announcement about all this, so I don't want to get into uh, too much into the weeds. But uh, the, the one other thing that could be relevant is um, for my Patreon podcast this month, I may stick with an idea I had, which was uh, sharing my old review of the Gus Van Zandt film Elephant, which I talk about in this review, different film, same title, and obviously influenced by this one. And also maybe doing as a relation to that, Gus Van Zandt's film Drugstore Cowboy is a Twin Peaks cinema, comparing it to Twin Peaks, as one of my listeners suggested at one point. I thought that was an intriguing idea. So with all that out of the way, uh, what have I been up to recently? Well, uh, my Twin Peaks cinema feed opened with the review of Laura. I don't think I mentioned that last time because I think it came out after the Halloween episode, uh, sharing my uh, comparison of the 1944 noir film to Twin Peaks, which it directly influenced in terms of names and other more subtle features as well. My Lost in Twin Peaks podcast that I mentioned has been going strong since the last episode. I finished my coverage of the pilot with uh, episodes on the current events going on around it, a pilot in the weeds where I go into the characters' locations and um, food that's in the episode, just a little trivial details like that, and then my pilot archive where I share uh, pieces that I've written in the past about the pilot. So after that week was done, I continued right on through seasons one, uh, season one, episodes one through four. All of those are done. Again, these are every Saturday, I start a new episode and through the week, every day, post a different category. And I've been pretty consistent doing uh, the welcome to the uh, podcast on a Saturday, the mystery elements on a, on Sunday, and then so forth. Laura storyline, uh, Laura Palmer, the character uh, storylines related to her, and then the next day, other subplots. And then the current events at the time in the in the weeds trivia stuff, and then archives, which at uh, fr- after the pilot was not just my previous reviews, but things that critics and fans had said about that episode or around the time the episode came out. So that's my approach, sort of a weekly daily hybrid. And I now have a couple of these left to finish up uh, season one, episode five, which is the one going on this week, the one known as the One Armed Man. So. And the illustrated companions go up every Saturday with the full week ahead uh, on there in terms of illustrations and the categories that I'm going to cover and and all of that. So you can look browse through that. So that's been the main time-consuming thing. On YouTube, I posted Twin Peaks Conversations number three, audio John Thorne, creator of Wrapped in Plastic. I cross-posted that publicly on Patreon as well. This was an hour-long conversation with one of the great Twin Peaks uh, scholars and commentators, who founded the magazine Wrapped in Plastic. We talk about all kinds of subjects. Judy, the end of uh, The Return, Laura Palmer's meaning in the narrative, how it relates to Firewalk Me, if it's a satisfying ending. We get really into the weeds of it. And we do a lot of that on the second part, which I can't even call the second half because it's an additional two hours, so it's twice as long as what I release publicly. That's for the $5 a month patrons 
on Patreon called Patreon Exclusive Part 2 of Twin Peaks Conversations with John Thorne. And uh, for dollar a month patrons on there, uh, even though I haven't put out, you know, my monthly episode was postponed uh, for the, uh, you know, Twin Peaks cinema and all that, I did open up a Lost in Twin Peaks episode, number 27, uh, with a further status update. So that one you can see there. And I also posted a status update about the upcoming delays, possible revisions. I put that on Patreon, on my site, and also in this podcast feed. Uh, on my site, it was called a revised schedule status update. So, of course, all these things will be linked below. Uh, you can check them out there. Uh, also, on my on lostinmovies.com, I've been continuing my Mad Men Season 6 viewing diary, Episode 6 for immediate release, Episode 7, Man with a Plan, Episode 8, The Crash, and Episode 9, The Better Half. Some really great episodes in there as the series moves through 1968. And uh, finally, also put up a September patron podcast cross-post for the previous month's podcast on Eraserhead and other subjects. So... Okay, that all that out of the way, uh, let's move on to discuss the film Elephant. Wow, there's a lot to talk about with this one. There's just a lot going on here with an extraordinarily simple premise and extraordinarily simple execution. No pun intended. So this is a film that follows the murder of, I didn't count it, I'd say probably about 15 or 16 people, usually by either a lone gunman or maybe two gunmen. There's almost no dialogue in the film. Only in one scene is there any dialogue. And the camera follows one person, usually the shooter, as they walk through some pretty bleak exterior spaces and also a lot of industrial, empty industrial spaces as well. This is a very depopulated film, and it's a film in which uh, the texture seems uh, almost as important as the action in a way. The film came out in 1989, and I'm sure when some of you saw that I was reviewing Elephant, you maybe thought of the 2003 Gus Van Zandt film. This is the first time I've seen uh, this particular film. It's 40 minutes long. It's from uh, the director Alan Clark. It aired on, I believe, British television at the time, and I think was shot in Northern Ireland, pretty sure. I'd seen Gus Van Zandt's Elephant before. Uh, and actually had reviewed it about eight years ago. And I was aware of this earlier film, and I knew that there was a connection between them. And I have to say, after watching this, um, it's it's evident exactly where Gus Van Zandt got the title of his film from. Um, you know, there were people who said, well, and Gus Van Zandt's film, in case you don't know, is basically a uh, restaging of the Columbine Massacre, in which you follow various students, um, both the students who do the killing and the students who are killed around in a high school in almost an identical manner to the way that this film is shot. Um, his whole film isn't quite shot that way, and there's other scenes and other things going on, but the bulk of the movie is that inside of a high school. So clearly he was taking this as a stylistic forebear and referring to it directly in in the title. I know people had suggested, well, maybe it refers to the elephant in the room, or maybe it refers to you can only kind of touch one part of the elephant, the tail or the trunk, and you can't get the whole picture or something. Um, those might be nice poetic connotations, but 
Um, I don't know if he ever denied taking it from the Alan Clark film, but I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's clear as daylight. It's, it's uh, pretty undeniable that, that that film is essentially a recapitulation of this film in a new context. And I think the context is important to discuss as well. I'm aware from reading about it that this has something to do with the troubles in Northern Ireland, and I would suspect that the characters being shot are informers, but I would not be able to get that at all from the, the film itself. You have no idea why all these people are being shot, who's shooting them, who the people being shot are, um, it's really violence presented without any context, virtually no context whatsoever. And as I said, there's little to no dialogue. The only dialogue you hear is somebody walks up to a soccer field and a uh, few people are playing there. And he asks one of the people, were you in last night? And he says, yeah, you know, I was, what's it to you anyways? And then the other guy shoots him. And before he shoots him, he says, oh, and that's the only time you really see the victim verbally react at all. And one of the few times that you see the victim try to avoid being shot. I think as the film goes along, you see more and more of the characters start to run. There's a lot of characters who show no resistance whatsoever. In fact, some of them actually just look blankly at the gun until they're killed. And it could, depending what mood you watch it in or what how, how you come to it, you could almost see some of it as arch, dry, black comedy. <laughs> like the fact that these characters just sort of stand there passively and get shot at times. You know, it's interesting. I would imagine that some of the defenses of this film, and I, maybe it's not imagining, maybe I've read this, but I, I can't cite anywhere specifically, have defended it as anti-violence because it's de-glamorizing violence so much and taking it out of the realm of these explosive action movies that existed in the 80s where it's very cathartic and accompanied by a lot of fanfare and music and shooting style and everything like that and putting it in this very mundane setting where it's just harsh and real. But I don't know that I would call this realistic at all. There would probably be a lot more messiness if, if this situation was enacted in real life. Both there would be more witnesses around, there would be more people saying things, reacting in a certain way, Really, this is almost more of an abstraction of violence in some ways. Um, if I hadn't read about the fact that it had something to do with the, the, the struggle between like the IRA and the UDF and the British and everybody in, um, in, in, in Northern Ireland, I would still have a sense that this wasn't just a thrill-seeking killer or something. There's just a feeling that they are out to do a job, um, whether they, be, they are hitmen or revolutionaries or reactioners or whatever the case may be um you do you you get the sense that there's a real sort of purpose and mission and they're not enjoying this they're not doing this for fun this is something that they have to do also a big difference from gus van zandt's elephant is how crowded that film is you know it's in a high school and even though we're following sort of one character around there's a whole bunch of people there's a real social environment there and you get much less of a sense of that in in this in this film in the Alan Clark elephant. And I should note, I'm recording this on a day where there was another horrible school shooting in Florida and actually where my cousins live, luckily they're okay. But, you know, so this is, this was sort of very much on my mind. I watched it today as a coincidence because of runtime. It just made sense between different things I was doing. After I made that decision, as I was about to start watching, I thought, oh, geez, how is this going to look in that, in that context? It feels kind of distant from that in a sense, but also... Um, it certainly doesn't feel like it clarifies situations like that. This this film, I mean, 
I'm, I'm kind of glad that it, it wasn't the Gus Van Sant one I was going to watch. I think that might have been a little too close to home. But uh, even this film, it's like an abstraction of of that's of those situations where it's all about the individuals, both the the killer and their motive, and the people who've been injured or killed, and you're hearing their stories. And with this, it's like the phenomenon divorced from any sort of human aspect. It's really interesting to watch this film uh, now versus when it came out, because what at the time may have seemed a very sort of alien distancing and challenging for the viewer to engage with now is almost the norm. I mean, this is essentially a shooter game that you're watching. I mean, there's the most popular thing for people to watch now is not necessarily movies, not necessarily TV shows, but in a lot of cases to sit online and watch other people play shooting games. So it's kind of funny or ironic in a way to watch this film and think of it as something that was avant-garde at the time that is now like almost more normal than normal. The way that visual culture specifically has changed in the past 30 years, in large part because of video games, but also not just visual culture, I'd say the whole context of this idea of walking around and shooting people and showing it and um, not really commenting on it, how that whole context has changed in 30 years. In a sense, if this was a radical new perspective on violence in 1989, as I said, it's it's now something that seems almost natural. Like, oh, of course, that's, that's how uh, violence is represented, is, you know, through this kind of methodical carnage. So it's hard to see a film like this, even on a, not a day like this, and not think about school shootings, but also not think about how we've all sort of been immersed in this fascination with violence for so long now, particularly young men. And actually, I would recommend a great podcast uh, recently aired uh, the that I recently listened to, uh, Delete Your Account, which you probably heard of. It's one of the more well-known left-wing uh, podcasts. And they had, as a guest, Liz Ryerson, whose podcast I was on Beyond the Filter, uh, last year to discuss Twin Peaks and she gets into video game culture and the development of it and specifically shooter games and uh, how also the defense department her and some of the other guests talk about how the defense department funded some of this and has used the development of these games as training devices and everything like that so now that brings us back to this specific film I, um, I I kind of don't know what to make of the film intellectually in a sense, and I do know what to make of it emotionally and aesthetically. As I've discussed, this is something that in a way I grew up with this kind of uh, depiction of violence or this sort of removed, um, almost dehumanized perspective of violence. So I didn't find it challenging at all in that sense. I found it very absorbing. And uh, also, I noticed particularly in the last sequence where they're walking through this hallway and you can hear their shoes squeaking, there's a really kind of fascinating use of sound throughout where you're not, you, nobody's speaking. So really all you're getting auditorily is this, the sound of traffic or the ambiance of the room and the shoes squishing and it kind of moves you through the sequence almost like you know video game music would or something else would in a more uh, typical movie when i say i don't quite know what to make of the film intellectually what i mean is whatever purpose if he had a purpose if this wasn't just sort of an exercise and almost sort of a visual experiment but if he had some sort of statement that he was making with this film 
uh, Alan Clark. I think by what's happened over the past 30 years, it's now completely divorced from that that context or that that reaction that he may have predicted and expected and built the film around. And so what is taken out of the film, which is any sense of the reason or the meaning behind this, any sense of the human emotion wrapped up in it, I think no longer quite comes off as a subversive gesture so much as in some ways, I guess, whatever the opposite of a subversive gesture would be. I think now if you're going to make a film about violence and you're attempting to make people see it in a different way or to grapple with it uh, outside of a familiar, the familiar context that it's placed in, you really have to explore the the reasons behind it and what it's expressing and the the consequences that it has to just look at violence as an abstraction in itself, I think is uh, no longer radical. It's now almost a sort of numbing approach to what we've already kind of become numb to. Now, this isn't necessarily a criticism of the film. It's just more of an observation. Finally, one other thing I wanted to say about the film that I thought was interesting is the fact that we don't know oftentimes if we're watching the killer or the the victim. I think that was maybe the most interesting thing about this movie from from a conceptual standpoint is that identification of... First of all, who we're following, so are we? is our point of view with them? If it's with them, do we kind of want them to be the killer in some sense? Do we want them to be the victim? And this is something that is very different from uh, video games or from the narrative surrounding school shootings and the way the media presents violence and everything like that, is this ambiguity of who we're with. I did viscerally react often, and it was almost always when I didn't know who was going to be killed or I was expecting something different and, you know, the character that I thought was going to be the killer ended up being shot or the character that I thought um, was going to be shot suddenly pulled out a gun or at the very end you have two characters walking together, 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 through it all. Are they going to kill someone together? Is someone going to pop out and kill them? And then they reach the destination. One of them steps back and shoots the other one. And it was a planned execution. And that's that's kind of where the movie leaves you and with specifically with the blood stain on the wall and it does always come back to to the victim to the person who was shot and observes their their body there before then usually going back to the shooter and watching them continue off and going to the next scene there's a there's a structural conceit to it that follows that in each sequence after sequence after sequence. And so by leaving us with that, I think although I was struck with the way in which the world and uh, media in general has caught up with this film, and uh, even though that was what really struck me for the most part on first viewing, I think I would also want to end on that note. It's standing apart from those other more thoughtless trends and it's doing something more compelling with that. And here is both the feedback I spoke of and preceding that, some clips, some citations from uh, the AV Club, where I found a really interesting discussion, just further digging into it. And again, as I mentioned in this, I, I would love to hear back from other people listening to it now in 2021 uh, or later, if they catch up with this, uh, their take on this film as well. Before we get to the listener feedback this week, I'm going to kind of work backwards from it. Uh, this feedback was from Jeff. It was comments on my site. 
about uh, the film he recommended, Elephant. It's only in the later years, it's only with the experiments, particularly in Northern Ireland, particularly with Elephant, that he becomes what you might call an auteur in the sense of only thinking of the script as a beginning. And that, that process of throwing out the script on Elephant, I know, was incredibly painful to him. And uh, he had pangs of conscience, which no cinema director would have. And that led me to an article in the AV Club, which I thought was pretty interesting. It was The Other Elephant and the Art of Context-Free TV Violence by Ignaty Vishnevetsky. And he had a passage I thought was really interesting about why the film is TV. I wanted to share that here before moving on to the feedback, um, as well as a comment somebody left kind of riffing on that. He writes, In the last few years, I've come to think of a lot of scripted TV and film not as totally separate art forms, but as members of the same evolutionary family, which, in the taxonomy of media, are distinguished on the most basic level by a kind of imaginary audience. A TV show can be a lot of things, but it's generally understood something that could be aired on a TV channel, even if it isn't, much as a film is something we can imagine being shown in a movie theater. The key with Elephant, which I've been meaning to revisit for some time, as I've been collecting some thoughts on camera movement, is that for all of its stereotypically filmic qualities, it is really designed for the imaginary TV set in a meaningful way. The late French critic Serge Denet, who wrote some of the smartest criticism on movies and media to come out of the 1980s, once wrote that the key factor in the development of cinema as an art was that it was, from the very beginning, shown in a dark room to a paying, seated audience who was also expected to keep quiet. That's a very specific relationship, and it informed the grammar and self-reflexive qualities of movies, even when these viewing conditions no longer apply. And the key factor in TV has always been the ability to tune out. The use of repetition and ambiguity in Elephant, it's really important. Although Van Zant's movie won the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival, it was initially produced for HBO, yet it still addresses its audience like a movie audience, with particular expectations about patience and time. Clark's Elephant, in its own way, resembles an art installation created for the space of a major TV channel slot, something that could be tuned into at any moment. True to form, it was broadcast only once, in the early winter of 1989. Now the comment I wanted to read was from The Angry Internet, and I'll link that in the article below. The commenter called The Angry Internet quotes the part about Serge Denet and says, Nothing against Denet, since I like what I've read of his, but there's an awful lot out there to indicate that audiences for early cinema were much rowdier than this suggests, perhaps not on the same level as a modern Rocky Horror revival, but spectators at an early fairground screening or Nickelodeon would have thought nothing of applauding whenever they saw anything praiseworthy, booing when they saw a villain or just something they disliked, shouting out dialogue, and generally behaving in a way that would make texting during a movie seem like a trivial disruption. The extent to which this was a general phenomenon, or prevalent primarily among working-class audiences weaned on vaudeville, is a topic of debate and scholarship on early film spectatorship. What Denate seems to be talking about here is what Gabrielle Padula calls the dark cube model of moviegoing, which he contends only became entrenched in the 1910s. There's also the school of thought reflected in this essay, and they link something among others, that a key factor in the development of cinema was the use of various techniques by exhibitors and filmmakers to structure the sound space of screening venues and pave the way for more sustained and enclosed narratives. And then there are other parts of the world where the expectation of quiet came about later. C.F. Maudon on Chinese film audiences in the early 30s. A fanatical audience surrounds you, and whenever the knights errants engage in a combat scene and start projecting their flying swords, 
the audience screams hysterically, or still hasn't completely taken hold, e.g. India. And Ignetti responds, ah, the sounds of early cinema, solid book. However, in most places, I think film exhibition carried over local theatrical conventions. Anyway, the important thing is that it developed as the only thing people were paying attention, while TV, once the novelty wore off, had to develop as the thing people should pay attention to instead of everything else. So that's his clarification of what he wrote. And sort of an interesting discussion springs up around that. Here are the comments by Jeff posting as Mormont on my site. Enjoyed this. Two difficult films for you to represent through audio clips. So it was interesting to me that you talked about Learning Elephant was about the troubles by reading about it, and that you assume the film was shot in Northern Ireland. To me as a British viewer, both of those things seem so obvious without being told. The visual language of this conflict is so iconic as to be cliched, and this film played a major role in establishing some of the cliches that we still see today. The Fall, a modern detective series starring Gillian Anderson and set in the province, features a contract killing that was clearly inspired by Elephant in the way it's carried out, if not in the way that it's shot. You talk a lot about the violence being presented without context or explanation, but the thing is that back then, the motivations for violence in Northern Ireland were a feature of public consciousness. Everyone had an opinion on the politics of the situation. Clark stripped away all of the noise and presented the ugly practical realities of the ideological conflict. An endless cycle of tit-for-tat reprisals and apparently meaningless killings, and to people, including those of us living outside the province, so stupefied by the violence that they could only look on and wring their hands. And I responded with some replies to that, and also just talking about the one time I'd been to Northern Ireland and being so surprised at um, what Belfast looked like, like there was murals everywhere, really violent ones on the part of the loyalists, and then more peaceful looking ones on the part of the IRA, and so that was kind of an interesting juxtaposition with the types of films I'd seen growing up where the IRA was always kind of the bad guys and, uh, you know, scowling and intimidating and all this kind of stuff. So um, that that kind of fascinated me. And then Jeff responded again. He said, it's a very murky business and difficult to unpick. What you say is funny as the perspective in Britain was that Americans were overly sympathetic to the IRA out of a sort of irresponsible romanticism. Certainly Hollywood's treatment of the subject tended towards the ridiculous and was often universally insulting. In the UK, any attempts to be truly even-handed on the political issues would inevitably lead to condemnation by certain sections of society. The Tory press and the government of the day took quite a hard-line position. By dispensing with any of that, and not even revealing what side any given character was on, Clark avoided being painted as a lefty IRA sympathizer or a straight propagandist. I don't think those sort of labels would have bothered him much personally, but it might have prejudiced viewers' opinions of the work itself. So I'd love to hear more from other people as well on Elephant, particularly people um, who lived in the UK or Ireland at that time or soon after and have kind of that direct experience with the phenomenon. Really interesting subject that, as I said, as Americans, I feel like we grew up with certain distance perspectives, whether you think it was overly romantic or whether it was overly villainizing. Um, it was sort of mythologized from afar in a way that would have been different for people um, who are closer to the violence that's it for this episode please rate review and subscribe and uh, you can become a patron on patreon.com slash lost in the movies here's a preview of part of what we'll be covering next month and i think i'm going to do a double feature because this review was really short it was just like 10 minutes when i 
went back and revisited and and so you know it was part of a compilation with other reviews in the uh, when I released it for patrons so here's part of what you're going to hear but I think I'm going to add something else on as well so that it's a little longer episode and that will be appearing in early December minimum freedom I'm not going to tell you anything you want to hear and prison will give me plenty of time to look at guys I don't like. Don't look at the eyes, Ricks! Eyes. Eyes. Once filled with love, are consumed with fear. 